I want to talk to you tonight. I don't have a title for what we want to talk about tonight. I want to just walk through the Word of God and what I'm learning. And uh, I memorize all the, the, the teachings and lessons I do for several reasons. Uh, first of all, I want to be like Jesus. All right, I want to be like Jesus. I'm not Jesus, but I do want to be like Jesus. And John Stewart of Edinburgh studied the teachings of Jesus and found out that Jesus taught his main teachings over 500 times each. And it wasn't the 500 different groups, it was to the same audience because they had to get what he was saying. You see, repetition is the key to learning, retaining, and confidence. Repetition is the key to learning, retaining, and confidence. Repetition is the key to, come on. Again, repetition is the key to, very good. And Jesus taught in a repetitious way. As a matter of fact, the era he came in, the era of rabbis he came in, the era before him was the era of the pairs. They did everything in twos. In his era, it was the era of the repeaters, the repetition. Now, why was it so important that he repeats? Why is that so important? And I'm trying to teach every single one of the lessons I know 500 times each. I want to be like Jesus. The second reason I do this, not only to retain, and let's do a practice. Now, we're going to sing a song. Everybody in here now, this is a full church participation song. Everybody will know it. You could go on a TV show, American Idol, African Idol, whatever Idol show you watch. You could go on that show and you could, you, could, you could win a gold star with this song right here. Everybody in here. Y'all going to sing it with me? You going to sing it with me? Let me see your hand. Come on. Come on now. Some, come on now. Make me feel good. I come a long way to be here. You ain't going to sing it with us? All right. I'm going to point you out now. Here we go. Here we go. You ready? A, B, C. Come on. Come on in the back over there. Can't hear you. All right. So now, you, now that's, a, that's, that's a universal... Now, now, see, this is the universal symbol for stop singing right there. <laughs> that right there. Okay. Now, I'll be 63 in another month. Uh, there are probably some people in here who may be more mature than me. Did anybody have to go and review your notes to sing that song? Did anybody need a PowerPoint? Did you need to study it? I've talked to people who hadn't sung that song in 60 years. And all I had to do was trigger it. And they could sing it. Why? Because of the way they learn it through repetition. And any of us could go on any show, any TV show, at any time, we could be triggered and we could nail that song. Repetition is the key to learning, retaining, and confidence. And who wants to follow somebody who's not confident in where they're going? There are men that have been in my life and I'd be like, hey, can I go with you? Can I be a part of what you're doing? Well, I'm not sure of what I'm doing. Well, I'm throwing them deuces on you because I'm not going with you. If you're not confident in what you're doing, you sure can't show me what you're doing. And when did it become a bad thing to be confident in what you're doing in the body of Christ? Why can football coaches, soccer coaches, baseball coaches, basketball coaches, and players be confident in what they're doing, and we think that's a good thing when it comes to sports? It's okay. But when it comes to the body of Christ, when did it become a bad thing to be confident in the things of Christ and the things you know in Christ and the things you do in Christ? When did it become prideful for a person, if they're aggressive about the things of God, to be called prideful? When they're just aggressive about sharing their faith, about studying the Word of God, about ministering to people, when did that become a thing of pride? 
And when did it become a bad thing to be competitive in the things of God? Now, I'm not talking about competing against another brother or sister in Christ. I'm talking about competing against your own potential. One of my favorite movies, maybe my favorite movie, is the movie Secretariat. And Secretariat is running these races. And he always runs from the back and wins. Barely wins. But on the last race, he's raced against this other horse who's a long-distance runner. And the other owner says, okay, go out strong on Secretariat. He's a short-distance horse. Go out strong and burn him out. Make him chase you. Burn him out. Burn him out. Burn him out. So on the last race, Secretariat always starts from the back. On the last race. And everybody's afraid of the, the rider that Secretariat his, the, the, the jockey that rides him because this jockey has already busted some hearts in some of the horses that he's ridden. So they're afraid on this longest race, mile and a half race, mile and three quarter race, that this rider may bust his heart. And so the race starts. Secretary for the first time comes out in the front and the announcer saying, this ain't good. They're neck and neck, neck and neck. They're going at it. And the other owner of the other horse, he's smiling. And he's like, yeah, we got him now. We're going to burn him out. But then they get up after a mile. And then Secretariat Rider says, come on, let's go. And Secretariat starts busting out. And you hear the man say, five paces, 10 links, 20 links, still surging like a locomotive, 25 links, 28 links. And he wins by 31 lengths, and no other horse has ever done that before. You see, all those other races, Secretariat was competing against the other horses. And that last race, he competed against his own potential, and he set a record that's never been broken. So do you run against your own potential, or do you run against others? What is your potential? Are you maximizing that? Are you measuring against others and maybe coming in short when you can excel even more? So when did it become a bad thing to be competitive in the body of Christ? Competing against your own potential. Can y'all feel me on that? Y'all feel me? Uh, where I'm from, that means amen. Huh? Do you feel me? All right then, y'all in here with me. So... Let's talk this evening from this text and bring out some highlights in it and then let the Holy Spirit share with you in your heart what you need to do in possibly obeying what the Word of God say. Not what I say, but what we hear from the Word of God. So let's turn to Mark chapter 4 verse 35. And I would say, when you get there, say amen, but see, people lie. You know, when the pages stop turning and, and, the, and it starts getting quieter, some people still be in Psalms, they ain't in Mark, and they don't want to hear anybody hear them turn the pages, and they stop in Psalms, and the pastor say, are you there? And they'll say what? Yes. And they know they're sitting in Psalms. So Mark chapter 4, verse 35. We're going to walk through this. Okay? Are you there? Okay, very good. I'm reading from the NASB. He says, On that day when evening came, he said to them, Let us go over to the other side. Now he was talking to his disciples. And in the context of this verse, there's a whole lot of stuff there that if we don't get the context, we'll miss some things. You see, context gives words their meaning. Now, if I say ring the bell, ring the bell. At the summer camp we work at, ring the bell means there's someone who's made a decision for Christ and we ring a bell and everybody stops and celebrates that. So it means someone has surrendered their heart to Christ for salvation. In a Central America or South American community, when they ring the bell, that means the community come together or we stop for prayer, but it means there's going to be a gathering somewhere or it's prayer time. Ring the bell. 
If you and the Navy SEALs are going out or trying out, are you in the process of becoming a Navy SEAL and you ring the bell, that means you quit and gave up. So ring the bell, one phrase, three different contexts, three different meanings. So when you study the Word of God, you must study it from its historical context to get the true meaning of it. Otherwise, you will impose your own context, many times your own culture, many times your own background. You'll impose it on there, and then you will be violating the Word of God because you'll be trying to get the Word of God to say what you want it to say. And truth is what God says. Not what I say, what he says. And it's truth only if I say what he says about his word. You feel me? So he says, let's go to the other side. Now, the other side has a context of people that the Jewish people just didn't like. These other siders, they were pagans. They were people who sacrificed to idols. They ate the wrong kind of meat. And so they were on the other side of the lake, and there were these ten cities called the Decapolis. As a matter of fact, three of those cities were so pagan that the rabbis forbade them to go to those cities. And then here's Jesus, their rabbi. Now, once again, we got to study culture because when these disciples connected and was accepted to follow a rabbi, they came out from under the authority of their parents in that household, and now they were totally under the authority of that rabbi. Now here they've heard all their life. They've had some of their rabbis and the religious leaders say, don't fool them folks on the other side. We don't mess around over there. They're not right. We, we, got this, we feel a certain kind of way about them. And sometimes it says more about what we think and feel about people, not so much what we say about them, but what we don't say about them. Some people are like, hey, I love everybody, but you don't talk about them folks at the eating table in a positive way when you and your kids are sitting around. They wouldn't know it. So sometimes it tells more what you don't say about folks than what you do. So these other siders, they've heard this all their life. It's ingrained in them. And here's the rabbi said, hey, fellas, load the boat. We're headed to the other side. And see, when a Talmud or disciple connected to a rabbi, they understood in asking a rabbi to follow them, and the rabbi understood in accepting this rabbi, accepting this disciple in following them, there would be no rebellion tolerated. None. So in this disciple-making relationship, there was no rebellion tolerated in rabbi Talmud. Teacher, disciple, there was no rebellion tolerated. And any time rebellion came into the process, it broke down. I followed a man as my disciple maker for 30 years. 29,000 hours up close and personal. And if you came around him and you came around us, no one, no one, no one, and even him himself would tell you there was not a time when I rebelled against any of the process he had me in. And I grew up 45 minutes from where the Ku Klux Klan started, a group of people who oppressed and and persecuted and everything, my race, the African-American race, I grew up 45 minutes from there, and my disciple was an old white man from Arkansas. And not once, not once did he make me feel like his boy. Because if anybody knows me, I ain't being nobody's boy. But there's not one person and even he himself would testify to it, can say they ever saw me rebel against the process he had me in. I know what that looks like. I know what a discipleship relationship looks like when you got a disciple trailing you and there's no rebellion involved. But we have three disciple relationships we got to deal with. You got the one I just talked about. Rabbi Talmud, rabbi disciple, teacher disciple. No rebellion tolerated. Anytime rebellion comes in, it breaks down. 
Had a young man one time, he says, hey, uh, you know, want to be in the disciple process. Okay, I started him in the process. He was submitted to the uh, lessons. He was submitted to the assignments. He was faithful to the assignments, but he was not totally submitted to the process. So we was banging heads, banging heads, banging heads. So I just finally said, hey, can't do this anymore. This ain't good. And because the Lord had told me, son, you are sinning against me by trying to disciple this young man who is unfaithful and unsurrendered. Because in 2 Timothy 2.2 it says, The things you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, the same exact things entrust, deposit to faithful men, neuter noun, faithful people who shall be able, made able to disciple others also. And that word deposit and trust is a command. So when I try to do a Jesus-standardized, biblical disciple-making, not some of the things we're doing and call disciple-making, but a Jesus-standardized, disciple-making standard strategy, if I try to do that with an unfaithful person, then I am violating the Word of God and I'm sinning against God. And if a young man comes to me and he says, Soup, will you disciple me? And that young man is unfaithful. He's asking me to violate the word of God by discipling him. Now, I know this is some different kind of stuff. But don't take my word for it. You don't know me. The only way you know me is what you've heard about me. You don't know me. Had a man one time, he was like, you know, I knew I could listen to Soup talk and I could trust him because in the first 15 minutes I saw him, how he was, how he was operating with Linda and how he was doing her. And when I saw how great and gentle and how nice he was to Linda, then I knew I could trust him. I said, man, that ain't cute, that ain't pretty. Don't say that about me no more. You gonna judge 38 years of marriage on 15 minutes? Don't do that no more. What if you caught me in a bad 15 minutes? Have we ever had a bad 15 minutes? Serve love. <laughs> Have you ever had a bad 15 minutes, Pastor? What about you, Pastor Mike? Where he at? You ever had a bad 15 minutes? What about you over here? Had a bad 15 minutes? What if he caught me in a bad 15 minutes? Did he have judged 38 years on a bad 15 minutes? So don't judge me. Get a Bible and go look up yourself what I'm saying. Because if I can convince you, somebody else can unconvince you. And you can't convince nobody else of what you ain't convinced of yourself. Y'all feel me? So here they go. Jesus said, let's go to the other side. Oh, oh yeah, let's do these relationships. Uh, you know, I'm jet lagged, so y'all pray for me. All right. I done drunk so much coffee, I don't know if y'all gonna need another load of coffee in Ethiopia. Okay? So you got your disciple, rabbi, teacher, Talmud. The other relationship that discipling must happen, and it has to be strategic, is biological. These kids we got, there's always rebellion going on. Can I get an amen? It comes with it. And with your kids, there has to be forced obedience. But still, we got to figure out a strategy on how to have truth and life transference in a biological discipling relationship. We got to figure it out. Just got to figure it out. Somehow you got to transfer life and truth to your kids in, a, in, in many times a, a very rebellious situation. Is that right? Come on, is that right? And some of you young folks out here, you rebelling against your parents right now. You're making it hard on folks. Stop doing that. Stop doing that. You see, my kids come back to me now, and they go, Daddy, I see what you're trying to do now. You know why? Because they got their own kids, right? <laughs> I told you it's going to come back on you. That's what I tell them. I told you it's going to come back on you. They got their own kids. So some of you who are being rebellious against your parents right now, remember one day you're going to have your own. Going to have your own. And then that third, 
Matrimonial. Matrimonial. You got passive rebellion going on. You, you've got uh, uh, you got equal equal uh, voice in things going on. But men in matrimonial, we are supposed to be the disciples of our wives. And if you and, and 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 ladies. Some of y'all going to have to humble yourself and let your man get on that word. And some of you men need to get with Pastor Steve and Pastor Mike and some of these men around here and learn the word so you can lead in your household spiritually. You know what we do sometimes, men? In our house, in our house, where we the high priest of our home, We'll let another man come in. We'll default back at dinner time and say, hey, you pray. You do this. I don't care if it's the pastor. If the pastor comes to my house, pastor, you pray if I give you permission to pray, because it's my house. I'm the high priest of this house. <laughs> so what does a wife think when you turn the authority of your house over to another man? What do the kids think when you turn the authority of your household over to another man? So don't be mad. Don't be upset. When crisis time comes and she don't turn to you, she turns that other authority. Don't get mad. You allowed that to happen. So Lynn and I, when we first got married, I was dumb, dumb as a doorknob about marriage and stuff. Wasn't nobody showing me nothing, didn't nobody teach me nothing. Man, I messed up so many times. This woman loved, loved me through it. This woman has never put me down in public. This woman has never said, I told you so. Never done any of that. And I called myself, going to disciple her, Pastor, with a Bible. And I was taking that Bible trying to make her into the woman I want her to be. Guess how long that worked? Not long at all. About, about, that, about that long. <laughs> I set up a mistrust. She didn't trust me in that word at that point. So I backed off. And I said, what I disciple her is I just keep her with me and let her learn as I'm learning, as I'm teaching, feed her information. And now we got the best relationship spiritually. We talk about things. We listen to stuff. She tells me stuff she's learning. I let her know stuff I'm learning. We, we, we'll read stuff together. We'll listen to stuff together. But that's how we do it, just to with me, because I messed it up on the front end. But in matrimonial, you got to figure that out, how it works for y'all. You got to figure it out. And you can't pass. You can't get a bye, man. What's that thing in a golf court? A mulligan? You can't get no mulligan. You can't get a pass. You can't get a bye. You got to play this and through. You got to strap it up. You got to tape your ankles. You got to get in the game on this. So they're going to the other side. The rabbi said, we got to get over there. And look what he says. Leaving the crowd, they took, and here's another thing about the other side. The other side is only a seven mile or seven hour walk to where they're going. It's not that far. But Jesus said, let's get in the boat. But it's only a seven mile or seven hour walk. I'd have to go back and do my research, but it's one of those. It's not that far. Verse 36. Leaving the crowd, they took him along with him in the boat, just as he was. And the other boats were with him. So that just as he was phrase kind of means there's some hesitancy. There was no rebellion. There was hesitancy. Because in their culture, the number one goal of a disciple was to be exactly like their rabbi. Exactly like. In our culture today, I don't know about y'all, but in America, our culture is, if somebody says, oh, you just trying to be like Pastor Steve, they say it in a negative way. 
Oh, look at him. Just trying to be like Pastor Steve. Look at her. Just trying to be like Miss Margaret. Just in a negative way. I take 10 more of him any day. I take 10 more of her any day. But we've made it a negative thing. And here's Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, imitate me as I imitate Christ. In their culture, the greatest thing could be said to you is, is, is they see you coming through and you just like your rabbi, they say, look at that. That's amazing. That's his disciples. That's her disciples because they're just like them. A rabbi could have a bad hip and be walking with a dip like this coming through. 80 years old, walking with a bad dip. He could have 12 CrossFit diesel disciples. Y'all know what I mean, CrossFit diesel? I mean muscle. He could have 12 muscle disciples, muscles coming through. Guess how they be walking? They be dipping just like this. Because the goal was not just to know his knowledge. It was to be exactly as the, as the rabbi. The greatest compliment, the greatest accolade, the greatest thing could be said about you. Why is it okay for folks to be like Ronaldo? And that, I know that's got to be a soccer player because there's so many Ronaldo soccer players. I know it's got to be a good Ronaldo soccer player, ain't it? Is it Damon Rimgallo? Is it? Yeah. And we tell our kids, be like him. Play like him. The coaches, be like Ronaldo. Basketball in the, in the United States, be like Steph Curry. Be like Steph. Young ladies in the United States, they want to be like Beyonce. Be like Beyonce. But then when it comes to being like somebody like Christ, we say, oh, that's such a negative thing. We need to get back to this word and see what God says about the imitation. And here's the question you need to ask yourself. We need to ask ourselves. Is if there were 10 or 12 more of you, if there were 10 or 12 more of you exactly like you right now today, would that be an asset to the kingdom or a liability? Would it be a plus or a minus? Would it be more advantage for Yeshua, Messiah, or would it be a, a more advantage for Satan if there were 10 or 12 more of you? So they were kind of hesitant about going to the other side. Here's another reason they were hesitant, not just because the other siders. Verse 37. And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat, so much that the boat was already filling up. Jesus himself was in the stern of the ship on a cushion, and they woke him and said to him, Teacher, Rabbi, do you not care that we are perishing? And he got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down and it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? Now, another reason they wanted to walk to the other side is here's what they're saying. Jesus, can't we walk this time? Because every time we get in the boat with you, or you tell us to get in the boat, what happened, y'all? What happens every time you tell them to get in the boat? A storm blow up. And I'm sure they're looking at each other going, see there? Told you. Here it is. We're back in the boat in the storm again. Every time Jesus tells us to get in the boat, he gets in the boat with us, a storm comes up. Can we just walk this time? Stay out of this storm? Now, what was their rabbi doing during this storm? What was he doing? Huh? What should they have been doing? If they're his disciples in Talmud, if their rabbi's on a cushion sleeping, they should be on a cushion sleeping. So what is Jesus doing when a storm comes up in your life? 
Do you look in the word and see what he does in storms? Or do you pay attention to the storms and what the storm may be doing? See, circumstances shouldn't dictate our walk in Christ. Circumstances shouldn't dictate how we relate to Christ. How we relate to Christ should dictate to the circumstances. Does that make sense? So, then he says, oh, you of little faith. Did he say that somewhere else? Remember he told them, go across the boat, go across the water one other time, and they were out on the water. And Jesus came walking toward them. And they got scared and they said, it's a what? Huh? What they call him? It's a ghost. They said it's a ghost. Why would they say it's a ghost? Well, in their culture, they believed the abyss was under the sea. That's where all the evil spirits and demons and stuff lived. So they're on that water. They're thinking that, man, this storm done stirred up a, a demon, done stirred up a ghost. And this ghost is walking out to us on this boat. What are he going to do to us? What are he going to do? We're scared. It's a ghost. Because they didn't swim in the deep water. They believed that the abyss was under that sea. That's where the ghosts live. And then they found out it was Jesus. And what did Peter say? If it's you, can I come out there with you? He said, come on. And what did Peter do? He stepped out the boat and walked on water. And you know what? We will say Peter had no faith. This man stepped out of the boat and walked on water. And we say, oh, his faith was little. He started looking at the storm. Faith got little, and he started to sink. Now, the Bible says the man walked on water. Y'all got any boats in this town? Let's go test your faith. Y'all got water around here, ain't you? Let's go test your faith. Let's see if you got faith to match his. We say he ain't had no faith. We dog him out. But the man stepped out of the boat and walked on water. Then he sunk. Jesus reached out and got him, pulled him up. Now, the Bible don't say Jesus levitated him back to the boat. I have to believe he walked back to the boat with Jesus. Two things. Why did Peter walk on water? Who did he see walking on water? Who did he see walking on water? He saw his rabbi walking on water. And the whole goal of a Talmud was to be like who? Come on, to be like who? So he got out of the boat and walked on water because he saw his rabbi walking on water. Now in their culture, they wouldn't be dogging Peter out. They wouldn't be downing him. They wouldn't be saying, man, look at him, how he's doing. What they would be asking is, where are the other 11? Why weren't they walking on the water? Isn't he their rabbi also? What are they still doing in the boat? If your goal is to be like the rabbi, why aren't you out there with Peter? That's what they would be asking. Then he pulled him up. And he says, oh, you of little faith, why do you doubt? Why do you doubt what? In the context, why do you doubt that you could not be like me? Remember, their goal was to be exactly like the rabbi. So he says, why did you doubt that you could not be like me? You know what? Young folks walk up to us all the time and have. And they say, hey, I want to be like you. I want to be like you. And you know what we do in our piousness? We say what? Don't be like me, be like. Come on, we've all said it. Don't be like me, be like. Tilt them hello to the side and come on with me. Don't be like me, be like. What have you just said about yourself? When you tell somebody that, what have you just said about yourself? You have just said you are not like Jesus. 
When they see, I see a Jesus in you that I want to follow, a Jesus in you I want to be like, and then you get all, don't be like me, be like Jesus. Now, where are you going to tell them to find this Jesus? He'd be down at the Friendship Park on Tuesday at 6. Where are you going to tell them to find him? So in this moment, could our rabbi be saying to us, why do you doubt that you can't be like me? And here's what we go into. Well, I'm not perfect, but, well, anybody who knows you know that. <laughs> if men or ladies, you got any doubt about it, ask your spouse. You won't find one line in the word that tells us to be perfect. It's used the word, if you see the word, it means be mature. But you don't see one line in the word that tells us to be perfect, flawless, without no sin, without nothing. He doesn't tell us to be perfect, but he does tell us to be obedient. Just be obedient. So why do you doubt? Why do you doubt that you can't be like Jesus? And that's about as non-scriptural statement that you can make. Don't be like me. Be like Jesus. When the word of God, the divine inspired word of God, 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Paul says, follow me. He didn't say follow Christ. He says, follow me. Follow me as I follow Christ. In other words, watch how I follow Christ and follow me that way and you will be like Christ as I'm becoming like Christ. Now, once again, don't take my word on this. Go look it up for yourself. But look it up in its culture context. Paul says again in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17, 16 and 17. Chapter 4, thank you, Linda. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16 and 17. Paul says, imitate me. Be like me. Then he says, for this reason, I send you Timothy. What? Paul, you want me to be like you? It's the inspired divine word of God. Paul says, be like me, but I'm going to send you Timothy. What's he saying about Timothy? When you got Timothy... You got me. So here's another question we have to ask ourselves. Where is your Timothy and your Timothy yet? Where is that person that you have allowed into your life, that you've walked up close with, that you have discipled, and the word in the Great Commission to make disciples is mathetusite. It means turn someone into something, turn someone into a multiplier. And the only way you can do that is in close proximity, up close, and a life autopsy to someone. Only way you can do it. So where is that Timothy or Timothy yet that you can put up there and it's just like you are there? I got them, and this ain't bragging. I'm just telling you a fact. Got them all over the globe. And for that reason, I can lay my head on a pillow every night of my life with peace, knowing that if God brings me to the house, <clears throat> that, 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 that what I've done in them will just exponentially explode to the ends of the earth. They became very much afraid and said to one another, who then is this? Who then is this that even the winds and sea obey him? Now, once again, we got to talk about context and how they would see things. And when you study the Bible, you must study the Bible from what the audience would hear. And that, you know, that's the thing that I'm trying to get better at 
uh, every translator in the world say I'm the hardest person on the globe to translate for. Every translator in the world. Who's the hardest person you ever translate for? Soup. And I'm so glad I got translators who can make it to where it is, where the art, so, so, so the words can know what the audience are hearing. So when you study, you must know how those words translate to what the audience would hear in their context. Now, when a rabbi made a motion, did any kind of move, what they saw that is, is the rabbi's motion, movement, high set, high stance, points them back to the scripture. In other words, when they brought that woman in adultery to Jesus and he bit down in the, in the dirt and started to write, we always say, well, what did he write? And we make up stuff. He wrote this. He wrote that. They wouldn't be thinking that. They would say, where else in Scripture do we see a sage rabbi or Torah teacher bend down, write in the dirt, and get back up? That's what they would be saying. And they say, if we find that text, when it leads us back to the Scriptures, our answer will be there. They don't say, what's the answer? They say, where is that in the Scripture? Where is that in the text? So any movement, any motion, anything a rabbi does. So we got a rabbi here who steals and calms the sea. So guess what that did? It flashed them in the text back to Psalms. And these disciples of his had at least the first five books of Torah memorized, and many of them had Psalms memorized. As a matter of fact, they learned their alphabet on Psalms 119. Psalms 119 has 22 uh, sections. Hebrew alphabet has 22 uh, letters. So, and every section had eight verses. So for every alphabet they learned, they learned eight verses with it. Guess what might have been the second book they memorized? The one we never read much, and that's Leviticus. But Leviticus is the only greatest book on worship we got in our Bible. So they had a, a, a culture of memorization, memorization. So they knew the Psalms. And so when this stuff started happening, they began to see a movie scene. They began to see the scripture, the text play out before them. They began to see themselves in the text. And it took them back to Psalms 89, verses 5 through 8. Now I'm just going to paraphrase it. You write it down and read it when you get home. But he talks about, Someone who is mighty and great and he talks about the Lord and the sovereign God and then he talks about this is It's a rhetorical question. It says who can calm the seas who can do this who can deal with Leviathan all this kind of stuff So it's rhetorical, but they're telling and they're saying we in the boat with the who it is We in the boat with the who that So they're not really asking a question. They're making a statement because they have been illuminated to who they're in the boat with. We see the movie play out. We see what the psalm says. We're in the boat with the one that does all this. They've been illuminated. And then Psalms 107 verses 23 and following, it repeats it again. Yeah, they were in the boat, they were staggering, they were afraid, and, 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 they, and, and this person that's in the boat calmed the sea. And this movie is playing out before them. They see it. It's in their mind. They know the scripture. The text is coming back. They're illuminated. And then the last verse says, Now, take us back to our desired destination. Take us back to our desired haven. And that's Psalms 107 verse 23 through about 29. Then he says, take us back to our desired haven, our desired destination. Okay, Jesus, Rabbi, we got it. We got the lesson. We've been illuminated. We see the movie scene play out. We see what's happening. We got it. We've been illuminated. We got the picture. Now take us back to our desired destination, our desired haven. Where would that be for them? Where would that be for them? It would be back to where they started from, not the other side. Okay, Jesus, we see it. We got it. We've been illuminated. Now take us back to that place where we started, where it's cool and calm and we know the people and we're comfortable there. 
Take us back to there. What I want you to hear now, illumination is not obedience. Illumination is not obedience. How many times pastor preaches, Bible study happens, and people say, man, stepped on my toes. Man, I got it. Man, the Lord spoke to my heart this morning. Man, the Holy Spirit came and got me. I got it. I see it. I see it. I see it, Pastor. I see the study. I got it. Holy Spirit spoke. We got illuminated. God showed us. He showed us. He showed us. And then we leave that place with that illumination and go right back into the same sin we came in before he illuminated us. Couples, we do this all the time. Fuss and argue all the way to church. Come on now. Fuss and argue all the way to church. Don't even talk for 30 minutes in the car. Fuss and argue, fuss and argue, fuss and argue. Get out the car. Start walking to the church door. Then what? Person greeting. How y'all doing? Blessed and highly flavored. Then walk around in the building, shaking hands. Hey, fellowshipping. Because see, today the culture in the institution allows for us to walk around in our sin and do nothing about it. The culture allows for it. And then, fake it the whole time. Why is, in America it is, Sunday morning, 11 o'clock, 9 o'clock to 10, 11 o'clock to 12, whatever, 8 o'clock to 9, is the most fake hour in the week. And then, as soon as we turn our back on the door, Pastor, walking back to the car, frown comes on, don't say nothing to each other, get in the car, go home. And I guarantee, I guarantee, God spoke to somebody that morning in a message, in something somebody said, in a Bible study, and you knew you needed to get it right. And it might have been a three-point sermon, and in point number two, God spoke to you and says, get that right. At that point, you need to get up and go in the foyer. You need to go out on the sidewalk and say, look, baby, me and Linda done this so many times. Point one on the message, God just get on my head. I said, Linda, lobby. I don't need point two and three. Because if I wait to point two and three and five, I'm going to sit there and probably justify away what I'm supposed to do. I said, Linda Lobby, go out there, we get it right, hug, do what we need to do, and then come on back in. Illumination is not obedience. Obedience is carrying the illumination all the way through into what the rabbi told us to do. So if we're not obeying what God is telling us to do, if we're not going to do it, what do you need with another sermon? What do you need with another quiet time? What, why do you need to open your Bible and read it again? Why do you need to read one more verse? Why do you need another podcast? Just to add more disobedience in your life to answer to God for? People in Jesus' day listened with Shema hearing, the Shema, the Shema. That means hearing toward obedience, hearing for obedience. Do we walk in here in church service and actually hear for obedience? Or do we just come because that's the cultural thing to do, because that's just what we do? Or do we really come to hear from God, to walk out of here and obey what God wants us to do, that the world might be changed? All right. They came to the other side of the sea, into the country of the Gerasenes. These are folks that they had trouble with way back. They, had a, they feel a certain kind of way about these folks. 
When he got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. And he had his dwelling among the tombs. And one was able to bind, no one was able to bind him with a chain. This thing, was, this, this, this mug was strong. Because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and shackles broken in pieces, and no one was strong enough to do him. You know, uh, do, I, I've probably been on the continent 30 times, do a lot of work over in the east part of Africa and the west Africa, and man, they got stuff over there happening that's just something. Uh, one time we were there and we dipped down in the cornfield. We should have known something when we was on the road and all of a sudden just dipped through a cornfield. And we were at this little tent meeting and uh, I had a friend, He's a, he was an engineer with a railroad, like 11th degree karate black belt kind of dude. He's 5'5", five, five, about 240, just muscle, big man. So he's preaching. All of a sudden somebody goes, Oh, okay, we all jet lag, we tired, it's hot out here. Next thing you know, somebody else. Oh. Then it's 15 people, 20 people. I was jet lag, but by this time I'm standing behind my chair. Going, which, which way I'm gonna go? Strange stuff start happening. And then the guy gets up out of the back and starts growling <laughs> like this. He comes around front, gets on his knees, spits up some green stuff. And my friend just kept preaching just like, like he wasn't there. By this time, I'm looking at Linda going, we're going this way or this way? <laughs> and after he spit the green stuff up, ran down through the cornfield. We got to go through that cornfield to get out of here. And then we ate. And the guy says, you know, we're a ministry to where when people feel like they got people who are possessed, they bring them here and we pray for them and this kind of thing. And by the way, we got a woman chained to a tree. I looked over this young lady, I said, did he say they got somebody chained to a tree? <laughs> said, yeah. So I said, I got to go use the restroom. So they said, go down that path and the hut's down there. So I start walking down the path and this lady sitting on a bench under a big tree, 98 pounds soaking wet with rocks in her pocket. Come sit with me. Now I'm on the back side of this country. She's speaking perfect English. And I look down there. She had a log chain around her big enough to hold, I mean, huge logs. I said, now what is this little lady doing with a big log chain on her like this? Come sit with me, come sit with me. I said, because <laughs> I had a vision of that chain around my neck if I went down there. Can you imagine this person? Take yourself there. This person's breaking chains, beating folks down in some of the other counts as they walk by, screaming and hollering off in there. Constantly, night and day, he was screaming among the tombs in the mountains and gnashing himself with stones. Uh, you think you would take your, your Halloween tour through here? Seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran and bowed down before him and shouting with a loud voice, he said, what business do we have with each other, Jesus, son of the most high God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. For it's been saying to him, Come out of this man, you unclean spirit. And he was asking him, what is your name? He said to him, my name is Legion, for we are many. And you know, you read the account of Legion, you could have anywhere from two, three thousand, six thousand. It just varies in there as, in the, as you study. And they began to implore him earnestly not to send him out of the country. Now there was a large herd of swine feeding nearby on the mountain. And the demons implored him saying, send us into the swine so that we may enter them. Jesus gave them permission, and coming out of the unclean spirit entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank in the sea. About how many, y'all? 2,000 pigs, maybe with three demons each. 
Now, can't, now put yourself in their shoes. Now, they didn't come across the abyss, right? All them demons already under there, evil spirits, ghosts. Now they seeing 2,000 pigs full of them come off this cliff. And can you imagine what that water looks like? Can you imagine the sound? Can you, ma can you imagine what that looks like? And they're sitting here looking at that. I wonder if they said, now we got to go back across there with all this done happen. Put yourself in their shoes, in their culture, what they would be thinking, what they see. Let's look on. And they ran down and drowned. The herdsmen ran away and reported to the city and the country. And the people came to what to see what had happened. They came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed sitting down, clothed in his right mind, and the very man who had the legion, they became frightened. Those who had seen described him, uh, described to them how it had happened, and the demon-possessed man and all the swine. And they began to implore him to leave their region. Well, they needed Jesus to leave there because if he heals five more people, they're going to need a stimulus check. <laughs> Ain't going to be no more pigs. Their economy going to trump. Their economy is going to be over if you heal five more people. They'll say, Jesus, you got to go. You messing with our money. And, he, and so then, as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed was imploring him that he might accompany him. And he did not let him go, but said unto him, Go home to your people and report what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis, ten pagan cities, what great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed. Now, this man said he was sitting at Jesus' feet for a little while. I want to go with you. No, go back to those cities and tell them what I've done for you. He didn't have a new members class. He did not have training in Romans Road, evangelism explosion, the four spiritual laws. All he did was went back to those 10 pagan cities and told his story of what the Lord had did for him. And when Jesus comes back to those banks, there are 4,000 people there waiting to meet him off of one man's story. So never underestimate the power of your story. When's the last time you told your story? Have you underestimated your story? Do you think your story doesn't have the pizzazz and the pop that it needs? Just tell your story. It's God's story in your life. Just tell your story and let him do what he do. And we got three and a half billion people that have not heard a clear presentation of the gospel. They need to hear your story. Don't let another week go by. Don't let another two or three days go by that you don't tell somebody your story. You got friends and relatives who don't know Jesus. Write your story on a piece of paper and mail it to them. And as long as that piece of paper doesn't get destroyed, it has the power to do what it does. Throw you some verses in there, some scriptures, so the seed of the word of God can plant itself in that heart. And Mark chapter 4, verses 26 through 29, talks about a farmer went forth to sow. And the way he sowed was no discrimination against the soil. Just sowed seed everywhere because every farmer knows if I don't sow abundantly, I won't reap abundantly. If I sow sparingly, I will reap sparingly. So this farmer just sowed and sowed and sowed through seed everywhere. No discrimination against the soil. Then he said he went to bed day and night and forgot about the seed. In other words, went about their daily routine, daily things of life, and forgot about the seed. Then it says, when the conditions of the soil was right, that the earth brought forth its fruit by itself, and that word is automatically. And remember, every time a rabbi tells a parable, we ought to find ourselves in that parable. So the seed is the word of God. Anything wrong with the seed? 
Never. Seize the word of God. The one who works the soil and breaks up the ground in the soil, that's God himself. Will God always be on his job? Come on, will he? So who does that leave that we are in this parable? What are we? Come on, what are we? We're the sowers. We're the farmers. Are there enough sowers on earth today? Think about it. Are there enough? There are plenty of sowers. The problem is the sowers ain't sowing no seed. When's the last time you dropped a seed? When's the last time you talked to someone with the intention that they might come to know Jesus? I've, been, I've, I've known Christ since 1981, and I've had five people who've attempted in 1981 to share the good news with me, and three of them wasn't even in, my, in the United States, the Christian, supposed the Christian nation. Only two in the United States even attempted. The other three were outside the country, and I just let them do it. We were in Far East Asia. This little lady came up. She came up to one of my friends. He's a big old African-American dude, got cuts up on both arms. African-Americans don't even go talk to him. And so this little lady comes up, and she goes, will you have breakfast with me? She says, I got a better uh, idea. Come have breakfast with me and my friend. So he brought her over to the table. Now, this is a country that if she gets caught sharing her faith, she could go to jail or get killed. But she thought enough about our soul to risk her life, to risk her safety, because she thought enough about our soul. And when she sat down, in three minutes, we know she was doing. What am I doing, y'all? What am I doing, huh? She was fishing. And man, we didn't go, oh, we're Christians, stop sharing with us, we're good, this kind of thing. Man, we sat there, we wept because we were so glad that somebody, somebody cared enough about us and did not assume that we were Christ followers and would risk their life to share the good news of the gospel with us. Have you dropped a seed lately? Have you shared your story? The Bible says when we get the seed to the soil and the conditions of the soil is right, salvation will be automatic. Automatic. All we got to do is get the seed to the soil. How many here got cell phones? Everybody? Anybody ever call you and you say wrong number? Did that ever happen to y'all? Come on. Has it? Has it? How can a born-again Christian Christ follower have a wrong number? Don't we say everything's divinely appointed except wrong phone calls, except telemarketers? Could it be out of seven billion people, God says, if I have this person who's lost call one of my servants, maybe they'll have the awareness to drop the seed in their heart because I got their heart prepared. You know what we do on them situations? Hello. Hey, I want to talk to you about click. Do you think that click might be the difference between you and their eternity? Have you ever thought about that? Why out of seven billion people did God have that person call your number? And many of them from another country somewhere that's God giving you a chance to impact another country, and you ain't got to have a passport to go there. You know what I find out when they call me? I talk with them, let them talk. Then I say, hey, how you doing? I say, how's your family? Is everybody well through this COVID stuff? Yes, we're doing fine. I say, uh, uh, is it hot there? Oh, very hot, very hot. I say, man, I love that butter chicken in your country. Oh, butter chicken's so good. I said, what, what, uh, what faith do you follow? They'll tell me. Then guess what they'll do after that? They'll ask me. I get to drop the seed. And they thank me for it. Now, they've been hung up a hundred times that day by you. And they just glad somebody would talk to them and care truly about who they are. 
So stop hanging up on these souls and drop the seed of the word of God. Don't underestimate your story. And I'll close with this. We as Christians today live by, and y'all going to help me because I never can get this right. Nissan Creed, Doc, Nissan Creed, Nissan Creed. Which is that Creed? Nicene, Nicene Creed. Today we walk in the Nicene Creed. The Nicene Creed. That's what Christianity walks in today. It was put together by a council. They came, put together, worked with it, and put together the creed. But there was a bishop who wrote it down and penned it so we could have it on paper and have it penned. That bishop came from the same town as this demoniac. So could it be a creed that we live by today, 2,000 years down the road, was penned by a man who was influenced by a demoniac who came to Christ and all he did was go back into his town and tell his story. Never underestimate your story. Learn how to tell it in a minute, two minutes, five minutes. Learn how to tell your story. And drop the seed of the word of God in your story. And then let it do what it do. Amen? Amen. Thank y'all for letting me share with you this evening. Pastor, you